Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I'm joined by Stephanie Carvin and two guests to talk about a new report on transparency and national security. Steph, do you want to introduce our guests? Yeah, it's so good to have you back, Craig. Always love having you on again, just like old times. Uh, but today, really happy to have Dominic Rochon, who's the Senior Assistant Deputy Minister uh, for National Security and Cyber at Public uh, Safety Canada, as well as the Government Co-Chair of the National Security Transparency Advisory Group, as well as a good friend and contributor to the podcast, Tomas you know from University of Ottawa, who is the, I believe, still the chair uh, of the or co-chair of the National Security Transparency Advisory Group, but it will be leaving in that role in, in the coming weeks. So yeah, we were here to talk about your new report. This is, I believe, the third report you have released, right? So, you know, congratulations for, <laughs> you've had to basically write all of your reports in this kind of hellish pandemic future that we live in. So congratulations on that. But perhaps for our audience, you guys could remind everyone, what is the National Security Transparency Advisory Group? Well, I'll take a stab at that. And, and thank you for the kind introduction, Stephanie and Craig. Great to be back on the podcast. You were reminding me that I, once upon a time, had been here once before and always great to be back. And I'm an avid listener and always great to be appearing with uh, Thomas Gino to talk about our efforts on the NS tag. And may I just take the opportunity publicly to thank Thomas for the three years that he has been a most excellent co-chair. Very sad to see him go, but obviously these things run their course. So the National Security Transparency Advisory Group essentially was launched in uh, July 2019. And the purpose was to implement the national security or help implement the national security transparency commitment. The group was uh, brought together. It includes 10 civil society representatives, lawyers, academics, and ex-public servants. They come together with the aim to infuse transparency into Canada's national security policies, programs, best practices, and activities in a way that will increase democratic accountability. It also looks to increase public awareness, engagement, and access to national security and related intelligence information. And finally, we look to promote transparency while ensuring the safety and security of Canadians. So those are the broad themes. The, the group, as you pointed out, is now about to uh, embark on promoting our third report. The initial report was all about what we heard in our first year. The second report was a little bit technical in, in talking about the definition, measurement, and institutionalization of transparency and national security. And finally, now uh, we've gotten to a, a very meaty report around how national security and intelligence institutions engage with racialized communities. And very happy to be here to talk about that. Right. I think I think media is actually the right word. I was, you know, you know, there's there's two major issues that you guys are dealing with this report, both like the national security communities relations with racialized communities, but also the challenges of artificial intelligence, which, you know, both issues are, are quite a lot. And you've packed a lot into about 40 pages here and going to recommend everyone definitely take a, a look at this. And we'll, we'll try to link to the report in the show notes. But uh, I guess really following up from that, one of the things that's always been interesting is from the get-go, there seemed to be a decision from STAG to have a very wide view of transparency, right? And you guys talk about this, I think, a little in the report, that transparency can just be about making information available. But you guys have chosen a much wider definition, and I, I, I support that. I think that's great. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. 
Well, that's the, that's the, really the result of our discussions, our deliberations over three years. It's not something that came up only in the in the new report. We even have a couple paragraphs in the second report that Dominique mentioned that came out last year on issues of measurement and institutionalization of transparency. So the, the thinking that that we we went through over the last three years was traditionally in government, not just in the national security sector, but in government in general, uh, and to some extent in public perceptions. When you think about transparency in government, you view it uh, more or less implicitly as government offloading information through talking points, through press releases, through press conferences, but with the overall idea that the government chooses the message, chooses the people to who it delivers the message, and the government has little or no interaction with whichever stakeholders it does. And that's how transparency was viewed. And we we came up with, with the view uh, over the last three years that that's that's part of it, but it's really not enough that that for transparency to really be effective in doing what it should be doing, which is contributing to democratic accountability, to contributing to building trust uh, between citizens and their government, transparency has to be defined much more broadly. It has to be dynamic. It has to be a two-way conversation, not a one-way conversation. The stakeholders have to be much more broadly defined, not just uh, certain elites like the media or others, but the population as a whole at the grassroots level. And government officials involved in those exchanges have to not just offload a pre-prepared message, but listen and also take in information and bring it back to whatever work they're doing. We focus that on the national security side, but for that matter, that, that, that view applies to government in general. So we wrote that briefly in, in the second report that came out last year, but that was really one of the starting points for this report, that to, to remedy, and we can talk about this more in detail, but to remedy issues of mistrust between the national security sector and minority communities, um, transparency that is viewed in a more traditional, narrow, unidirectional way, not only will not solve uh, the problems that we're trying to solve, which is lack of accountability, uh, mistrust, but may even contribute to them in some cases. On, on that point, Thomas, and, and thanks for joining us. And, and hi, Dom, it's good to see you again. It seems to me, thinking through the way you've approached transparency and perhaps stepping back and looking at how, the role of transparency in national security, that really there were, seemed to be three legs of the stool. The first and probably the more traditional is transparency as a source of understanding, building an understanding of the broader public about what it is that government agencies do. And we could have a discussion as to how well the national security sector has done in that space over time. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is transparency to facilitate accountability. It's very difficult, for example, to talk seriously in a system of Westminster democracy about parliamentarians being empowered to ask the right questions in circumstances where there's not sufficient transparency that they can understand the broader context and understand what questions are relevant and to evaluate the, the answers. So transparency facilitating democratic accountability and democratic control. And then the last prong, which is the one that is most prominent in this existing report, is transparency as a prerequisite for dialogue. And so I, I'm very interested in your approach to engagement because you, you make a number of points about how the government has approached engagement as a practice. And am I right in reading your report and asserting that engagement can't be just a one-way street, but it has to be the basis for a dialogue in which there's both speaking, but also listening. And I wonder if you could expand on, first of all, am I right in terms of the tripartite stool? And could you expand on, on your vision of engagement? So yes, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. And thanks for the question, Craig. The I think you're very accurate in, in describing the three-legged stool. The way that I 
at it, uh, dating back to the six principles of the National Security Transparency Commitment, I, I see it as the three-pronged stool being information transparency, executive transparency, and policy transparency. So a little bit, a little bit different, but it, it essentially covers the three bases that you just mentioned. The information transparency is making information available, which, which should be the easiest thing to do. Executive transparency is, is explaining the, the legal structure and, and, and the underpinnings, as, as you pointed out. And frankly, this podcast does a, does a good job of, of helping us do that from a government perspective, because it's not everyone that actually understands you know, the bureaucracy and the authorities and the laws, et cetera. So um, thankful for, the, for this podcast, among others, that, that help us do that. The policy transparency sort of gets to where you were going, which is when we're developing policies, when we're developing programs, activities, and national security, we need to engage stakeholders to make sure that we understand that we're not imbuing bias into those uh, programs, that we're actually understanding the impacts that these policies, programs, activities may have on the population and indeed on perhaps marginalized communities. And so that dialogue is incredibly important. It's not a question, and I think the report is accurate in depicting that engagement isn't a question of ticking a box to say, yep, we showed up at the Intrepid podcast and we broadcasted the fact that we engaged these three groups and therefore our work is done and let's proceed. But rather, no, you have to demonstrate, uh, first of all, explain why are you engaging? How are you engaging? There are, I think, I want to say 11 recommendations in this particular report that touch specifically on engagement. And when you actually read them out loud, they, they seem evident, but there, there, were, there is discipline required in terms of making sure that you have an engagement program, that you have training, so that you don't just send any person from RCMP or CSIS or CBSA or whatever the organization to just engage people for the sake of engaging, but rather there's a training program in place, that there is an outcome that you're trying to achieve, that you explain to people what that outcome is, that you're transparent around, around that. So I don't know, Tama, if you want to add to that, but that's that's sort of the, the rationale here. And, and to your point, Greg, very much it is a two-way street, it is a dialogue, and it and it needs not only to be to to be that in practice, but it also need the perception has to be that as well. And that's another angle that we need to address. Yeah, if if I if I can add to that, I, I think I mean it made some really good points. And I like how you how you you suggested those three pillars, Craig. What I what I'd add to, to build on some of the next points is, you know, through the one of the realizations that that really struck me over the three years of the work of, of the NS tag, and not just for this report, for that matter, um, is how difficult transparency is, and how uh, as much as it is important, and as much as I 100% think that the government should do more of it, there is a perception sometimes uh, outside the government that the government is not transparent just because it doesn't want to be transparent for whatever reason, and that if only it could flick a switch, it could start being much more transparent tomorrow or next week. And uh, that's just not the case. Uh, transparency is hard. And that's really one of my, my main takeaways. So to, to answer specifically your question and to build on Dominique's points, um, to engage, especially given the broad definition of transparency that we emphasized, in, including in, in the previous question, you need specific skills to do that. You cannot just send whatever intelligence officer or RCMP officer. You need people with specific skill sets. And the reality is that the skills to do that well are not common in government because it is not a, a type of activity that has been emphasized. You need engagement units 
specialized where these skills are fostered, training, as Dominique said, but with appropriate mandates to do that. There's a unit in CSIS, the Academic Outreach and Stakeholder Engagement Unit, that actually does this very well now. I think in many ways they're a role model. And, and basically my only or my main criticism of that unit is that they are too small. There should be more of it because generally speaking, they do their job quite well, but you need those specific mandates. You need a culture of engagement, not only within those units, but within the rest of the organization so that, and I think we may want to talk about that more in detail after this, but the, the products of these engagement activities has to be not just, as Dominique said, a box that is ticked and then we move on. It has to be incorporated back into the activities, the policies, the operations, of whichever organization we're talking about. Uh, and again, that's hard. This is not something that that uh, departments and agencies in the national security community do well for now. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to come by trial and error and pushing and pushing, but but it, it it's not easy and, and it requires a lot of work. And that's, I think, a key point to, to recognize. So, so maybe there are four stages then uh, to pull together the, the different comments that you two have made about an engagement strategy. So perhaps there has to be a, some thinking, uh, what is the purpose or objective of the engagement or the consultation to perhaps use a broader term uh, in terms of what the agency hopes to accomplish so that they have a clear mandate, if you will, from which then they can determine who should be the person doing the engagement and with whom should we engage and then on the back end, Tom, as you mentioned, there's the question of ingestion. So you go out, you have these conversations, perhaps you've raised expectations. Do you have the internal capacity to ingest what it is you've heard in a way that uh, creates a feedback loop, a meaningful feedback loop? And of course, all that requires both expertise, but also resourcing. So I'm curious from a machinery or government perspective, how realistic do you think it is, given the constraints that agencies face, how realistic is it to assume that, that we're around the corner from a from an enhanced capacity to engage in this sort of meaningful consultation? All very astute observations, and I would agree with your characterization of the four stages. If I could just add a couple of qualifications to that that are also embedded in some of the recommendations, and then I'll, I'll attempt to answer your question. Or I'll answer your question right off the bat in, in saying it's going to take time. Are we around the corner from, from having the culture that Tomas speaks about on this front? Hard to say. You need dedicated resources, as Tama pointed out. We, we have seen uh, incredible progress uh, at CSIS. The academic outreach program has been in place now for several years, and they're uh, doing incredible work. But you need to continue in that vein. I just wanted to highlight a couple of, of, of pratfalls in all of this. We mentioned in the report that it can't just be reactive. So you can't sort of say, oh, we now need an engagement strategy because this incident has happened or this new terrorist group has, has arisen. You need to have this as a matter of course so that you're ready when the incident happens. You've already laid the groundwork to be able to engage and you've already established a level of trust to be able to go in to these uh, communities and, and make sure that there's a there's a good rope. So the so at the end of the day, it's it's important that we that we imbue, as I say, more discipline in terms of how we approach these things. I think this particular report is going to help with the recommendations, spread the word that we need to have more programs in place, more investment, more, more activities. We, we mentioned the Canada Centre for Community Engagement uh, and Prevention of, of Violence here, colloquially referred to as the Canada Centre at Public Safety, who does have programs in place, contribution programs, investments, 
And over time, I think it'll 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 build on the foundation that has already started. And slowly but surely, we we also have history that isn't on our side because we haven't done this well in the past in the national security community. And so we we already are behind the curve and 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 having to um, overcome some of the uh, some of the mistakes of the past. Just a quick point to add to that on on, on the, the point that Craig asked, which is a really important question and a difficult one on whether this is realistic. A, I would agree with Dominique that there has been a lot of progress. The point where we're at today in terms of transparency in general in the national security community and relations with minority communities specifically is far from where we would ideally be, but it is much better today than it was 10 years ago. And, and that is an important point to emphasize. There has been a lot of progress in recent years, hopefully more, but there has been a lot. The second point on on the investment of resources and whether that's realistic, it is absolutely a good point. This costs a bit of money. I mean, everything that we described in previous questions in terms of that engagement capacity is, is requires human resources and a, a bit of, of a budget to do the, that engagement and so on. That's not a given. That's not automatic. But I, I, I think the, the, the ideal way to frame this is to say that it is a short-term cost, but the long-term benefit is, is very much worth the investment. That's easy to say and harder to do in practice, but it is important to keep in mind. So this brings me to another interesting part of your report, which is where you also talk about firewalls. We need engagement, but we also need firewalls because as you said, and, and Dominic, as, as you rightly point out, this hasn't, engagement hasn't been done well. There have also been, you know, there's a lot of mistrust in a number of racialized communities towards the, you know, towards the national security community and very understandable for why that is. So if suddenly you come out and engage, there is a concern that the this engagement is effectively a kind of um, quiet intelligence collection, right? That this is actually a way to spy on communities rather than engage with them. And, you know, there was a comment made by Brenda Lukey, which you referred to in the report where she said, yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. And you're saying, no, it's not. So I'm wondering, I guess, you know, we need the feed. You know, we, we talked there about how the engagement needs to feed back into these organizations. So they understand about these communities. They understand uh, the concerns of these communities. And that needs to ultimately impact operations in some way. But how do you do that in ways that, you know, so, so people understand that they're not being spied on. We're just, we're just trying to understand what your concerns are so we can better reflect those. You've got to find a balance because at the end of the day, you also are, for lack of a better way of explaining it, looking for bad people who are threatening uh, Canadians and Canadian interests. And so it's a national security is a very difficult task, as you well know, Stephanie, having having worked for the government in in, in the uh, the area before. So I think Craig very helpfully gave us uh, a roadmap in terms of those four stages. That's You have to go about it explaining who you're engaging with and why you're engaging with them. One of the recommendations we also make is uh, not just to not be reactive, be proactive, but also don't just meet with the leaders of, of, of a community. You've got to actually meet with the community itself. There's a grassroots that you need to, to, to engage with. And again, those are the people that are probably the most apprehensive. If someone all of a sudden out of the blue knocks on their door and you open a door and it's, hi, I'm from the RCMP or hi, I'm from CSIS. Or if you're at, you're, you're coming into Canada and a CBSA agent just says, yeah, you go, you go wait in that room over there. It's very intimidating. 
it would be intimidating to anyone, let alone a racialized community who will have heard stories and, and would, be, would be fearful and, and wouldn't understand why they're being singled out for something. So it, we co- it comes back to transparency. You have to be out, out front, up front, and explaining to people why is it that we're engaging you, what, for what purpose. And to your point about the firewall, there are operational reasons why someone is being investigated for something. You have to be transparent about that. And that is very different than we're engaging you to make sure that we have good relations so that we understand, that you understand why we're here and that we're here to protect you. Because at the end of the day, that's the other thing that the people need to understand is that RCMP, CBSA, CSIS, all of the uh, agencies and and, uh, departments that uh, work in national security do that to protect all Canadians. And I think that the vast, vast majority of activities do that. But every now and again, there might be some incident that might be unfortunately informed by bias, and that gets uh, blown up, and all of a sudden the mistrust is sown because of one particular incident here or there. So this is where we need to we need to shed some light on those four stages that uh, that Craig ac- accurately depicted to say we need to do better from an engagement perspective, and you need to have that discipline across all of those stages in order to be able to understand what it is we're doing. I would just add that, you know, in preparing this report, and for that matter, in some of the work we did in preparing the first two reports, we held dozens of consultations on a monthly basis with civil society activists, with academics, with government people, other levels of government officials and academics from other countries, etc. So we consulted very, very broadly. And one of the pervasive themes underlying a lot of this was this mistrust between a lot of people in in minority communities, racialized communities, and national security institutions. That mistrust is very high. And specifically on the issue of engagement, the perception, whether that perception is right or wrong, whether it's accurate or not, is to some extent not even the point. The perception that engagement activities are in practice hidden attempts or covert attempts to collect information on the people being engaged, that perception is often there, even if it is not accurate in some cases. Uh, That's not that ultimately the perception is the reality. So the reason why we included that section in the report is to, to say, well, engagement has to happen. But for engagement to be productive, to really achieve the broad goals that we do want engagement to achieve, the perception has got to be that the engagement is sincere, that it's genuine, and that it is only engagement. And that is, again, going to take time. It's, it has to be premised on confidence building, on relationship building, like Dominic just said, on reaching out not only to leaders of communities, but also at the grassroots level to build that confidence so that the perception is that when the engagement happened, it is not a, a covert collection attempt. That being said, the balance to strike is that without it, as much as that perception matters, engagement activities need to feed back into the operations and policies and processes of organization. So that has to be done. Of course, it has to be. It can't be just a, a separate parallel activity that uh, doesn't you know, have what Craig called the ingestion dimension, which I think is a very good word. Uh, so it, it is a difficult balance to strike, but it's an essential one. Can I just add, and we can segue into, I think, uh, very quickly into a topic that, that might be near and dear to Craig's heart, which is governance and, and the ability to report on complaints. So it's, it's not just, okay, we've described who and, and why and how, but after the fact, how are you governing that? Who is actually showing up? Is there, is there inherent diversity and inclusion 
in the representation of these organizations that I can actually see and that I'm, you know, if, if there's a perception that there's bias going on, how do you overcome that perception? Well, I want, to, I want to make sure that you're transparent about how you're governing the information that you're collecting, what you're using it for. But also, if I feel that you've abused that engagement for in, in any way, shape or form, I want to be able to complain about it. And I want you to report who has complained and when they've complained and why they've complained and what you've done about that complaint. So that's another element sort of at the tail end, in the fourth stage about how that's, how that's working. And I, and I think there are a couple of um, recommendations in the report that that address that as well. Yeah, and if 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 you'll bear with me, and I'll I'll step to the other side of my bifurcated brain here and put on the the, the more vested interest hat on on the issue of complaints. So I, I really was interested in your discussion on governance, of which you you raised also the issue of, of diversity, which has been a, a topic that we've discussed on this podcast in the past. On the on the issue of of governance, perhaps there are two issues worth mentioning. So the, the first issue is that of course in in government it's very typical to be concerned about silos and who does what and which agency is responsible for, for doing X as opposed to Y. In the broader public, there's an indifference to those barriers and the government is seen as an undifferentiated whole. So I have any kind of consultation in which some subset of government within its own particular silo is engaging and the focus of the conversation shifts to something that's within the remit of some other agency uh, and the body that's doing the consultation says, well, that's not our role. You have to talk to agency X. That could be deeply frustrating. So it seems to me that more than simply agents investing in their own consultation slash engagement process, there probably has to be an all of government approach to this so that people aren't frustrated by that sense that they're being given the runaround. Uh, the related issue is on, is on complaints. So uh, as you know, our complaints architecture is quite complex. And so, and CIRA, so I'll, at risk of freelancing, I'll put on my National Security and Intelligence Review Agency hat, has a broad remit uh, in relation to uh, a subset of the issues that tend to concern per persons. So there's a handful of agencies that are subject to NCIRA review, and so primarily CSIS, but, but also national security related issues of the RCMP through the channel of the RCMP Complaints Commission. And then the CSE, and then what I'll call a subset of security clearance issues, which is another issue. So right away, you can see there's a complexity in that architecture. Meanwhile, people have concerns about Privacy Act. They have concerns about access to information. They have human rights concerns. It's not often clear to whom you turn if you've got a given complaint. And so there, in the, along the same lines about an all-of-government approach to uh, consultation, there probably should be a consolidated portal that it steers people in the right direction when they have a complaint. Because my sense uh, is that people would be deeply frustrated if they are bounced around the system, is each agency, as it, as it must, observes its statutory remit and says, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. That's not, that's not something we can do. And so there must be some more public-facing approach to facilitate access to justice, if you will, or access to accountability. Uh, that isn't as preoccupied as Ottawa is with these different divisions and allows people to navigate the, this mess. I'd also, on the point of complaints, I mean, one of the challenges of complaints beyond simply communicating to whom you turn is to make those complaints move at sufficient dispatch. And that's an ongoing challenge and openly acknowledge that COVID has been very, very difficult in this space, given that uh, we've all had to work in, in a secure zone and, and consequence access to classified information has sometimes been constrained. By, by lockdowns. And so that the cadence and pace of the complaints process is, is, is also important to, to keep a watching eye on, as is the complexity. And so sometimes the complaints process, I think, is, has been too 
uh, legalistic in a way that I think has deterred persons from pursuing their complaints. And certainly for those who have been following around, following along with what Ansira is trying to do in her, you can see this in her Anna report and on our website, we're moving to a more investigative model as opposed to the classic quasi-judicial model to facilitate access, but also hopefully over time, increase the, the pace and cadence of, of being able to address complaints. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And so it's, it's, it's on the institutions that do the complaints management. It's on them as well to think hard uh, on this uh, question of, of engagement and credibility and reaching out to a public and, and serving an access to justice, access to accountability role. So you just explained very well why the complaints process being so heavy, so complicated, so legalistic makes it difficult to access. That is 100% true. That was one of the starting premises for one of the sections in our report. Where we go in this section in the report is that as much as what you just said is entirely true, it is even more true even more applicable for vulnerable communities, for people who don't have French or English as a first language, for people who don't have access to resources, for people who are far from Ottawa, for people who already, for whatever reason, historical or whatever, have mistrust towards national security communities. And that is certainly the case for a lot of people in minority or racialized communities and other vulnerable groups. It's not to say that it's not applicable to pretty much everybody, but it's arguably even more applicable uh, to, to vulnerable groups. So the uh, on that basis, that's why we were uh, fairly critical. And, and this is a point that came back a lot in our consultations, again, with civil society groups of, of the unfairness, of the inaccessibility, of the complaints mechanisms, which and by virtue of being so complicated, in practice, discourage people from, from using them in many cases. So that's why our recommendations are fairly high level. There would have been scope to go much deeper into this. Maybe for somebody in CIRA and STAG, somebody else to, to, to go more into detail on this. But we have two main recommendations. One, uh, that national security and intelligence institutions have on their main webpage, not buried, but on their main webpage, an obvious link to the complaints process. And, and even beyond that, that the government consider, and this goes to the point that you made, that for people outside the Ottawa bubble, government is government. Institutional silos are irrelevant uh, and, and not well understood. And that's that's normal. Uh, so that we recommended that the government cr consider creating a basically a one-stop shop to initiate a complaint. And then that on that basis, the process becomes much more accessible, uh, much more uh, simple, and, and basically not intimidating to the point of being discouraging. So your vision would be something like an ombudsman in process of receiving complaints, and then an internal distribution of the complaint to the relevant complaints body. Is that, is that what you're talking about? So the onus is on government itself to filter the complaints to the right agency and not on the person to figure out complicated government web pages and jurisdictional language in some statute somewhere. Well, we don't, we don't use the term ombudsman and we did not go into much detail beyond that general recommendation. But, but where I think you are bang on is that the onus is on government to simplify that process, because as of now, the complexity makes it discouraging. Well, there are also legislative complexities that, you know, are inevitable. And so, you know, if, if there truly is a grievance that needs to be addressed from a legal perspective, you know, as, as you well know, Craig, uh, there's a specific process that is spelled out in the CSIS Act that an official complaint must go through NCIRA, for example. Less clear if you feel that that has happened at a border crossing for CBSA, or you know, if an RCMP officer happened to stop you in the street and ask you a few questions. 
well, that seemed a little bit inappropriate. Where can I complain about this? So this is where I think we, we just need to do a better job from a transparency perspective, again, to explain uh, how the, the types of interactions between the national security and intelligence community and regular Canadians occur and how and why, who's who. So what's the difference between a CBSA officer, an RCMP officer, someone that's calling you from the Communication Security Establishment Cyber Center because there's been a widespread issue of, of cybersecurity, which is a, a growing issue. So who are these different individuals in the national security government environment? And why are they reaching out and speaking to me? If we do a better job of doing that, that's, a, that's an initial important first step. And then the next step is, okay, so what are you doing after you speak with me? Where does that go? That's a second initial step. And then thirdly, and if I have any kind of discomfort with any of this, where can I go to actually complain about it? And is it one place or do I have to distinguish who I was speaking with and go to a different place depending on, on who that person is? Again, having that better explained before we get to the point of, well, we are, there are so many complaints, maybe we need an official ombudsperson that's actually managing that. But before we get to that, I think we need to, to, to put in, lay, lay a, a few foundational bricks. Uh, and I think there's, there's some improvement there that, that certainly can be made. And so we're, we're slowly but surely making a few recommendations at the, from, if, with this particular report to say, look into this, do better. But that might be something that we'll have to build upon going forward. And certainly uh, something that uh, I would welcome the National Security Committee uh, of Parliamentarians who, who look at national security or the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, maybe even uh, talking to the different organizations across the, uh, the community to find out what's the best approach here. Very useful observations. And so thank you for making those recommendations. So this has been a really fascinating discussion. There's so much more about this issue of engagement with racialized communities, with enabling the, just making the process, whether it's engagement or or complaints more accessible to people, right? Just, it's, it's one thing to have those institutions there. It's another thing that people can actually easily know about them and use them. It, it, it's a whole other, and I'm, I'm so glad we're, we're having this conversation. But I want to just touch on the second half of the report, which is on AI, which I think we will probably get to in, in a, another podcast because, again, there's just so much there that I don't think we can get to everything today. So I was wondering if you could just touch on the issue of AI specifically as it relates to racialized communities and some of the concerns that were there, why you decided to talk about it in this report, and how these issues might feature in, in future reports. So we, ha we have a few members of the National Security Transparency Advisory Group that are particularly interested in technology and talking about engagement with uh, racialized communities. The question did come up about how national security and intelligence departments and agencies can minimize and mitigate the efforts of bias in artificial intelligence technologies. Uh, we read a lot about how AI is going to make all of our lives better because it's going to make things more efficient. So you know what, if you're, if you're coming into uh, to Canada at the airport, instead of standing in a really long line, maybe we can start using biometrics and we can have everybody go through machines and artificial intelligence will help with security screening and things of that nature as a, as a quick example. Well, uh, who's designing that security screening? And as you're introducing artificial intelligence, how do you make sure that biases aren't making their way into that? And, and that is particularly of interest to racialized communities who are going to say, well, wait a second, I feel like I'm being stopped or I'm being, I'm being sent to secondary more often than someone who doesn't look or talk like me. So what's, what's the deal there? 
Um, I think what we're looking to elaborate on that, I, we've, we've dipped our toe into some of the conversations around artificial intelligence in this report. I think it's more forward-looking because the truth of the matter is the RCMP, CSIS, haven't necessarily embraced and started introducing these technologies. They're on the verge of doing that. And they're having conversations with the privacy commissioner and the information commissioner about, about some of these issues. And as the NSTAG, we're looking to examine the wider implications of digitization for the governance of the national security community in our next report. So report number four, we're at the burgeoning stages of that. And I think this provides some foreshadowing into some of the questions that we're going to be delving into a little deeper. So thanks everyone for, for joining us here today. I mean, this is a really, really fascinating report. I would highly encourage everyone to read it, especially the recommendations. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of honesty, I think, in this report, right? More than your average government report. There's there's a lot of people from outside, but that's what makes it unique. And that would that is, I think, what also makes it refreshing. And hopefully it's going to be starting a lot more conversations in the national security community and who, who really do need to do a better job of taking this issue seriously. So thank you so much. And let me echo those thanks. Thanks, uh, Dom. And, and thanks, Tama. And, and thanks, Tama, to, to you and your colleagues uh, who have invested in the National Security Transparency Advisory Group. Thank you for your leadership and your service over the last three years. Uh, it's certainly, I think the conversation is much further advanced than it than it was even a half decade ago. And uh, I think we, we can be heartened by that development. Much more to be done, but in the right direction. So thank you again. Well, and I, I'm happy you mentioned that because I think it is really worth thanking the, the the members of the tag who for two years, one year, three years, depending on 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 the members, have been doing this on on a volunteer basis and 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 spending time going through the consultations, writing the reports. So they they their work is is very much appreciated by myself and and I assume by by Dominique uh, Dominique too. So thank you if, if if they're listening. Thanks a lot for that. Indeed, we're incredibly indebted to all of the members, and uh, I want to extend my thanks to all of them, as I want to extend my thanks to you, uh, Stephanie and Craig, for promoting transparency and inviting us on today. It's been uh, great, as always, and uh, look forward to uh, your continued success with the uh, podcast.